Welcome to the Fan Engagement Chat, the episode of the Fan Engagement Pod where we hear about someone's approach to fan engagement. Until recently, Jacob Nash was commercial director at FC Nordisjelland, one of the most innovative sports organisations in the world and the youngest professional football team in Europe. The club, part of the Right to Dream group, has a unique model for developing players which emphasises the nurturing of purpose, character and leadership in the young players they create. He now works as purpose lead for the Right to Dream group. He's previously worked for Fulham FC's Foundation as Head of Development and at Brighton and Hove Albion's Albion in the Community. Pound for pound, Jacob, for me, is one of the most deep thinkers on football clubs and the game more generally and really understands the deep connection between clubs, fans and communities. It's a real treat to get to chat with him for so long about engagement with fans and the wider issues at FC Nordisjelland, the game in Denmark and football more widely. By the way, apologies for the sound quality from me on this episode. And don't forget, you can find out how your club did in the Fan Engagement Index 2019-2020 season at fanengagement.net, where you can register free for the Fan Engagement Hub if you want to access more detailed data and case studies from the 1920 Index. Enjoy the show. Jacob, right, Jacob, Jake, do you ever get called Jake or is it just Jacob? Yeah, I call Jake, I like to keep my name is Jacob on all my I, I like you, I've got, I've got a son, I've got a son and I like to call him by his full name, it was my, it was my choice and I hate it when people shorten it, so I'm going to call you Jacob. Um, right, um, so Jacob, um, do you want to just explain a little bit about, very briefly, about what it is you do, and, and it really will be kind of just job title, this is what I do now, this is what I did before, and then let's go into what you were doing until fairly recently, where I know things have shifted. But I just want people to understand the context that we're talking about. So give us give us a little intro, please. Okay, sure. So my name's Jake Nash. Um, I am now the purpose lead at the Right to Dream Group, and we are the ownership organisation for uh, an ecosystem of academies that are growing across the world, growing some of the best and um, uh, most thoughtful young leaders, I guess, and a really, really interesting educational model. But also it's a football-based student-athlete model. So these uh, uh, young men and women uh, end up playing uh, very high-level top-flight, sometimes international-level football. Um, over the last three and a half years, just before I, I accepted this role, I was the commercial director at FC Norseland, which is a, a Danish football club playing top tier of, of Denmark. And the Right to Dream group is the ownership of, of, of FCN at the moment. Um, and that, that club model, club academy ecosystem model will grow over the next few years as we seek to, to grow into more clubs and, and kind of create a really interesting and compelling opportunity pathway system for all the young people that we, that we serve. So, it, so um, it, does it bear a relation to the multi-club model? To some extent, is that what is that partly what you're talking about? Is that actually it will be enough? You'll you'll be involved. The group will be involved in a number of clubs, either full ownership or part ownership, or that, or that, could, that could be one possible outcome. That could be one possible outcome. Whether it looks like um, the uh, current multi-club models that you see elsewhere, I I think it will look very different because of how committed we are to 
the way in which we grow young athletes and the kind of things we hope are very important to them, which is kind of equally balanced on the way they develop themselves as a human holistically and, and their education and such as well as their, their athletic development. So I imagine it'll look very different, but it's entirely possible that it will uh, involve multi-clubs, yeah. Okay, so what I want to do then is just, let, let's just have a look at your time as commercial director, because football you know most people say well a football club it's a football club isn't it but as as i learned a lot about um when i when i worked around europe you know every every country genuinely has a different culture b also when it comes to someone like denmark it's not and it's only really in the last 20 or 30 years that professional football has developed um and that their own football club cultures developed because they've always traditionally they looked over at certainly large parts of scandinavia would look towards scotland and england for their football very often because they were you know they that's just how it worked do you mean in terms um, of watching in yeah in terms of watching i mean yes the local sporting institutions mattered to them and that the you know the member association element of danish and swedish and norwegian football but in terms of actual mass watching of football it wasn't really something that that happened on you know in a lot in a larger to a large extent in in, in, in someone like denmark so you've you've been you know, you've been in an important and a key role in a in a football club in Denmark. In and not even in, in, in you know, it's a small it's a smaller club in the even in the ecosystem of Danish football. Um, I mean, I feel, feel a bit silly saying what's it been like, but I mean, in terms of the things that we talk about that that I like to talk about and that interest me, uh, fan engagement and you know, engagement of the local community, those things. What's what's the what's it been like? What the challenges been, and you know how distinct? Because you have worked some time in English football. What are the big differences that you've that you found there? Just give us a little bit of a you know people want to know this. It's a super interesting question that you ask, Kevin. And I guess there's so many different ways to to tackle it. But I think probably first of all on the on the culture side of things. So the kind of first of all the difference in football culture. So exactly as you say, um, the, the, the history here in, in, in football culture is a, a kind of uh, shorter history than the one that we experienced back in the United Kingdom. You know, probably one of the most famous clubs that anybody would know, probably from Denmark, um, it's Bromby. Bromby. Uh, you know, I think they were founded in 1965, FC Copenhagen, who are probably currently the, the biggest club in some ways, um, FC Michelin are also a big club in other ways, you know, FC Copenhagen was founded in the 1990s. Um, and the way in which elite athletic sport is done here is, is grounded in this grassroots model of, of, of um, sporting associations that hold the license on behalf of the professional club. So it's like it's a completely different uh, footballing ecosystem and landscape. Um, and, and that has produced a different kind of culture. And whilst it's true that I think a, a lot of uh, Danish football fans over the last 20 to 50 years have, have kind of maybe looked at England and had a somewhat romantic view about the football fan culture there and in Scotland as well. Um, it's a separate point, but it's actually quite interesting. I think there are some aspirational similarities that could be there for Denmark with Scotland more than in England, right? So um, uh, 
although they've looked and, and kind of drawn their inspiration in some way for the football fan culture they wanted to create, at the same time, you know, they're, they're, it's just a much smaller population and, and generates a level of interest that is, although it's high in terms of population, it's probably um, a, a lower level of interest than the stadiums built, the size of the stadiums built in some places, you know. But that even even that being said, there's been some like brilliant moments in in, in Danish football over the last thirty years. I mean, in 1992, obviously the European Championship win, which was just incredible, and um, and then the the various different Champions League campaigns that that clubs have participated in. One of which we were lucky enough to participate in in 2013. So, like it's it's there have been these great moments that have given Danish football kind of enough appetite and then of course you have a lot of people here who support more than one club and maybe support some English clubs as well Liverpool are very well followed here and, and stuff like that um, but it's definitely produced a different football culture and maybe we can talk a little bit in a second about the kind of core differences really between those do you want me to go into that yeah go, go ahead yeah you know it's an educational thing for me and for a lot of people yeah okay um well I think that one of the very interesting things to note here is just how it's a really, really great place to live. And it's a very, you know, you will have known this already by some international metrics, it's like the second happiest country in the world. It was for me the, the happiest. Um, there are brilliant things to do here. It's a very well-educated, very um, broadly quite happy and somewhat satisfied population you know of people um and that's not to say there aren't issues and challenges here of course there are you know there are everywhere but um so so i i when i reflect back on it like some of the the football culture that we managed to, to develop in the united kingdom some of that was like born in some disaffection to some degree right and like almost a, a rebelliousness against what the material reality people faced was. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, yes, no, absolutely, yeah. It's sort of been honed in, you know, quite often I'll talk about um, English football, we, the dynamic between owner and owners and um, and directors and, and officials and fans has been essentially quite oppositional. And I do, and I think both are responsible for that, by the way. I think it's, I think it's fueled by both. Yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. And then, so so that, that's a, like a big difference, I think, in terms of the two different football cultures. Um, in things like the availability of what there is to do here, there's a really interesting kind of, uh, uh, you've got so many opportunities to do just super cool stuff within a really, really short distance. So there are some things that, that um, get, limit maybe the interest of football sometimes. Also the fact that all the games are televised and such is also another thing, which is a little bit of a challenge, you know, currently. The next thing I think um, is is just the, the, the challenges of, of actually acquiring a club and then coming and bringing, a, 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 trying to bring a different culture, which then, and and I guess our own successes and failures in understanding what the 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 local population really requires and needs, and you're always doing that for your own cultural perspective, right? And we've we've had some great successes in that regard, and some big big failures as well, and learned a lot of lessons during the course of that that process. Probably the 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 best moment 
was um, in in March 2019 in some ways when there was this just wonderful um, uh, celebration of International Women's Day and and the players the, the players in our in our on our roster from all over the world wearing the names of their of their uh, women role models on 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 the back of their shirt playing FC Copenhagen selling selling out the game um, getting a great result it was just it was just a magic magic day you know and felt like we we had crossed the threshold and some of the messages that that we wanted to communicate which are very much around our belief in young people our belief in a holistic model our belief in the of the purpose and having a why and being able to communicate that for the better of society all of those things kind of came together in one place um, but now we've shifted I've, I've changed my role and we've gone from much more local focus within the club and I think that's absolutely the right call because I think it's it's definitely um, just just the, the, the you have to kind of mirror the and, and, and understand and show appreciation for the very distinct local reality that is happening around you you know and I think that now is 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 really starting to happen much more with a much more kind of local focus so what's the um just what's the fan base like i mean a what's what are the numbers like b um what's the actual sort of interest on the part of fans you know in terms of a scale i are there you know is it, it I, well I, I'm, I'm sure it isn't like bromby where you've you know that intense activism amongst a, a group of fans who some of whom i know um, you know, but but it's a, it's a it's a much older football culture, even though it's relatively young. If, if we look at it from this country or lots of other countries, um, but but there's obviously there's obviously going to be a scale of what fans are like. What what sort of what have you got there? What's it what's it like for for you sitting there in the role that you were in, mm. dealing with fans and communicating and doing engagement with them at various levels? So you've uh, one of the great things I think, and we were so lucky to have is is with the, the relatively, or what felt sometimes like a small number of fans, we had relationships and a fan interaction of the, of the highest quality. I mean, that's one of the gifts, I think, that um, having relatively no, low, low overall numbers gives you. Um, and just like the freedom, the one, I'll tell you the, the great things, I'll tell you the numbers in a minute. So you give, but the, the wonderful thing about these numbers is the ability of, of people from the fan group to kind of text leadership and say, you know, what's going on with this and stuff like that. And actually that's something, it, if, if we get to a, a point where it's bigger, I really hope we're, we will retain that. You know? Jacob, but just, just to intervene there very quickly, it's quite an interesting one because you'll often sort of assume, a lot of people will assume that people in leadership positions in clubs um, sort of disappear behind the veil, you know, when they're, when they're in that position and, oh, they don't want to hear, you know, why, why would they want to communicate with us? I think partly that's British corporate culture because somehow, you know, it's a bit Wizard of Oz like really, except of course people need to remember to pull back the curtain and you'll see a little man there pulling a chain and shouting through a, um, a loud hailer. It isn't all, of, it isn't all that. But actually speaking with, for me, some of the best people, they try to do what you, you know, what you're talking about. They're rather, there aren't enough. There aren't enough. But, but, but that value, that, 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 that practice that actually, 
there is no harm in making yourself available. It is a, it's, a, it's a great thing that not, not enough do, but there are a few people who do that over here. And their job is made so much easier. I'll add that. It's made so much easier by them being available because in part, if you're more in a sense, actually, I'm looking at it, the more available you are, in a sense, the less friction you get because people feel they, they know you're there. The more you hide away, the more people are going to search for you, if you see what I mean. Anyway, I didn't want to cut across you, but, but yeah, carry on. It's a super interesting and important point. I guess, like, I I would obviously caveat that point with the the, the idea that in some clubs where there's you know fifty thousand in fan membership and maybe thirty thirty thousand people coming to the game each week, materially that becomes like quite difficult. Um, uh, I noticed, uh, like, you had Paul Barber on, didn't you, last week? And I, like, I, I remember Paul yes. from working at uh, uh, Brighton, yeah. and he was brilliant at making himself available to people. And I think that, in part, made the culture possible. But it must have been the level of change that they managed to make happen there. Very mm. positive, brilliant. Yeah. It must have been significant. It must have been. It, although it would have made a lot of things easier in some ways, it must have made some things. Yeah, I, I suppose so, and I, and I suppose in the end, if it, if if you end up um, disappearing under an avalanche of correspondence every week, then you need to revisit it. Yeah. Then for me, it's the same as dealing with an issue like, um, you know, conversations I've had with clubs who where I said you need to find a way of being of, of having some dialogue over social media, for instance, because it's a really good channel to just kind of deal with queries and field stuff. And people have said to me, "Well, we haven't got anyone to do that," and my response to that is, "Well." Peg a day once a week where you deal with correspondence. You know, I, I, I get a sense that all these people, Mark Catlin's another one at Portsmouth, um, for example, is they just what they what they what they have is a discipline um, in their days. They and they, they also I think they also have an utter fascination with people and they like people that helps. A lot when it comes to running a football club, doesn't it? If you if you begrudge, if you begrudge people or if you struggle with. If you struggle with that side of it, then um, then you're going to struggle with having to have constant contact with people. Aren't you? I don't anyway. I want to go on. Carry on. Sorry. Well, maybe that's the that's the best way to understand it. Is like, it, it, how do you give yourself the time to pay attention? And that that can be a real gift, I think, if you can give yourself the time to pay attention and hear what people say. And you know, you can't do everything that everybody wants, but we're lucky enough to have. Um, you know, a really committed, engaged, communicative fan group that that just that want to talk. Same goes for the partners as well and sponsors. They're, they're, they they want to talk. They want to feedback. It's very much in keeping as well with the, the kind of Danish culture you see of being very direct about what you think about um, your experience, um, about your journey, about your about the products that you consume, so on, and the services that you take part in. Those things are very much in keeping with, with that here. So the three, we average around, and obviously this is going back more than 18 months now because of the corona pandemic, but um, we, we were averaging about three and a half thousand, 3,200 for most of the time that I was there. We managed to push it up a little bit more during 2019 and got to some, some good numbers that were around almost 4,000. Um, but yeah, and, and, and of course, um, you, you have 
like the the success of the dialogue that you do have with those fans also depends to some degree upon the action that you take as well right so so some of those some of the the things that we have designed and done with fans have been were better than others right they 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 that we executed them better than we did others i think we i i've been at one club where we rebranded and um at another club in which a rebrand had re recently took place. We did a rebrand at FC Norseland about in the summer of 2019 that had been planned for about a year before and ha had been executed over a very long period of time. Fans were involved in that process. And you know from yourself, from all the knowledge that you have of, of, of fan groups, rebranding re is a very risky time, right? It can, um, you can get it significantly wrong right and i think that that went really quite well and it's still it's kind of an ongoing process it doesn't end at all the the brand begins to live and breathe for itself and and take on new meaning for people um and the, the guys in the media team i think they they have done a really great job of bringing that to life at fc Norseland over the last three years over the last few years sorry Hi, I just want to take a quick moment to tell you about Match Day Digital, the world's first football-first digital magazine platform bringing together premium paid content from clubs, Match Day programmes, popular football magazines, newspapers and high-quality fan-produced fanzines. It's quite the list. Uh, Match Day Digital brings football content and supporters together in a single app which allows clubs and other publishers to deliver their content to a much wider audience than they would through their own print or digital sites and apps all especially relevant obviously during this covid era you can download the app on google play and apple store go to matchdaydigital.co.uk for more and if you're a club drop the fellas over there a line they're really friendly and i'm sure they'd love a chat with you about your needs yeah that yeah the rebrand rebrand is undoubtedly one of the most controversial things you can do and we've got plenty of plenty of um examples i'll leave people to to go and search for themselves and i won't start naming clubs but i think most people over here know the ones that made the biggest mistakes um and in, just an interest very interesting slight um fork in the road a phrase i'm using a lot recently um rugby leagues a sport i'm very interested in in terms of engagement and when it comes to rebranding um it's quite extraordinary the lengths the things rather that, that clubs in rugby league are doing without any real consent from fans that not they they are most definitely doing some form of you know they do get a little bit of opinion from somewhere they do definitely you know they don't uh, simply ignore fans completely but they're doing massive pieces of complete restructuring of the image of the values of the organization of the club and it isn't really being done in partnership with or working with it's a kind of business and marketing imperative to try to sell more units in my view and uh, i've been chatting with you know the guy guy J james gordon who runs Rug uh, love rugby league um uh, one of the sort of big rugby league websites and he's shown me lots of these sorts of projects and it's, it's quite remarkable how what you end up reading is essentially a justification by someone who was given a project as a as, a, as an agency to do a rebrand and they've done they've done what they're meant to do but on the club side i think they haven't um understood um what this actual process is about because it does all come back to you know when you do things like that 
it does come back to your values and how you regard the people who are, you know, either your either your uh, your fans or your players or your staff. An internal culture starts to become a really important thing, and that's something that fascinates me. Um, and that when you're making those decisions as commercial director, as you were, you're informed by a culture and not just uh, uh, you're not just reaching for the next decision to make because that's what you have to do because you've got another game coming up and you need to get that out of the way. You're trying to always reflect back to what the values are, aren't you? Yeah, that's like we're a very values-led organisation and I think the, the, the fortunate, all of us in leadership who were working on this at the time, we were so fortunate to have such brilliant people in all the teams that we were working with who were living the values on a constant everyday basis and like no it was incredible really how hard people worked on this how much of their lives they gave not just to uh, the kind of day-to-day -day operation of, a, of, of the club as a basic but then also to what we were trying to do to change and transform the club and take it to the next level because i mean all of it had an outcome right which i'll get to in a minute and the reason we're like why we were trying to do what we were trying to do which was about how we secure the long-term financial viability of, of the of the organization moving forward um but the, you kind of those people who were both in the teams that we were working with who were making all of this magic happen but then also that they're, they're they're creating a culture that we're fostering very values-based culture totally committed to to this idea that that we're about something more than the game right that we're about purpose and and purpose driven driven athletes but that then that sits in a, in a wider culture within those communities and that's the bit mediating you need really really great people very patient people people who work very very hard who can like mediate that to to to, to the context that they're facing in their day-to-day -day interactions and you know being able to text leadership is just one part of that actually you know your ticket uh, your, your, ticket, your ticketing experience is a huge part of it. The way in which partners are welcome to the club, it, it's just there's just so many different things that actually go into that and you need an incredibly committed workforce, I think, to make that happen. And we were really, really lucky to have that. Um, and then just to say something about the reason why we were kind of doing all of this is we, we really, our aim was at the moment we are the, the the youngest club in Europe and we're one of the youngest clubs in the world and we're very fortunate that our, that our academy development model produces these wonderful young people that, that are um, uh, coming into our first team at very young ages and then able to secure uh, interest from other uh, clubs around the world who want to take them to the next level now of course that's a really compelling proposition it's very hard for those young people to to to, to say no to that of course the career of professional footballers on the men's side tends to be extremely short I think it's eight years in England probably getting shorter now um, so so one of the we wanted to be able to play and win the Superliga with a teammate up entirely of academy graduates and in order to do that we needed to keep those players for longer and that was still kind of part of the goal now is to, is to do that so we were trying to, to 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 change all of these things and create this kind of new proposition for the club really in the community that we were in 
to, to, to grow those revenues, grow the fan base, grow our partnership portfolio so that we can make that dream come true. And we're still, still committed to that. Um, but yeah, that's just like a little bit of that. I realized that I didn't give the overall why for, for, for why we were, were doing what we were doing with the, the cultures. Yeah, uh, no, no, it's, it's very thorough. But um, I don't I, I don't want to major on it, but I think it is important is um, purpose is quite a I'll sort of go um, try and be a bit direct about it is purpose is quite a fluffy um, I can imagine there are people who sit there listening to this um, when we all talk, start talking about purpose and go all dreamy eyed and they go yeah well that's all great mate but um, you know, I'm trying to put on a match once a week. Um, and frankly, I haven't got the time to sit and think about purpose. Um, now, I know what my response to that is, is and, and incidentally, I think that, again, this is corporate culture. This is this is about how British business runs itself, certainly sort of small to medium size enterprises. It's about the traditional football culture, which is part of that British corporate culture. It's I'm in charge there is a lot of that about football it just is like that over here um and then you have this fortunate influx of, of gradual influx of enlightened owners i, I i'm sick, beginning to see of people who are, are much more thoughtful and, and 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 consider these things how much of this 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 purpose thing is about the the day-to-day -day, the people running it day-to-day -day, um the people delivering on the front line all the time right back to the chief executive and how much is it and i don't mean percentage terms you know just give us an idea a view of it and how much is it about ultimately if your owner doesn't buy into it or if your own ownership group let's call it that because you know it can be multiple state uh, shareholders it can be whatever you know lots of members if you're a member-owned club now how, how much of it is about your ownership group and the people who actually in the end say no stop hang on a minute that's not how we do this and in fact, they don't have to do that because the course has been set. So people know which direction you're going in. Is that a question? And does that make sense? Yeah, and can you answer yeah I think it? so. Uh, you can tell me at the end if you think I've answered it or not. But the first thing to say then to answer that is in terms of how much is we are extremely fortunate that we have both with Tom Vernon, who founded the organisation and acquired the club through Right to Dream, um, in 2015 and our uh, new investor group, the Mansour family, is they're very values driven people and, and they have a deeply held belief in the, the power of football to do something more than, than just produce athletes who score goals and win trophies and uh, sign massive sponsorship deals. They have, they have like a very, very compelling level of conviction in that. Uh, and, and, you know, like just to give, like what does purpose mean, right? Well, the, one way of thinking about purpose is this idea that you are planting trees that you never hope to sit in the shade of, right? And you, you are doing something that extends beyond just the, the, the functional practice of what you're supposed to be doing. 
taking a wage for a, for, for a job or um, uh, uh, let's say it's in a football context, putting on a football match once every two weeks um, and, and trying to fill the stadium. You're doing something that goes beyond that, that adds value to society in a, a you know, that's greater than the sum of its parts. And I think for, for us, the way that we understand that is in two different ways, two different levels, if you like. First of all, on the individual level and how we work with purpose with individuals. For us, your purpose is your internal narrative for why you're here on this earth, right? And some people spend their lifetime and never truly discovering theirs. Some people um, find it very, very early on and just to totally commit and know what they're there to do. Um, and some people find it somewhere along the middle. Um, and what we try to do is kind of accelerate that process within the individuals that we work with. Now, if you work in an organization such as, as ours and you have the leadership such as ours, and, and to give you a little uh, uh, example from Tom's story, like Tom began uh, the Academy in Ghana in 1999 called it the Right Stream Academy, selected 16 of the, of the uh, uh, best 11 year olds that he found from playing uh, in the local community that he was in. He moved them into his house and, and, and he did that with this hypothesis that if he educated them to a really high standard and focused on their, um, their, their character development as well, that he would not just develop um, uh, greater kind of young leaders who would be really good for their community if they didn't make it, i.e. it's the right thing to do. And not just for that, but actually that there's a kind of business case behind it that basically he would make better football players with a greater chance of succeeding. And that turned out in percentage terms to be the case, right? Um, and so, so his commitment to this way of thinking about purpose is, tw is, is 20 years, right, in the making. And it's taken us... 15 to really make it um, kind of tangible, I think, within the organization. But then when you begin running football games in this way, so, you know, every time we have three really big central pillars in our football calendar at the moment, International Women's Day, um, uh, Black History Month and Pride, in which the, the whole club is kind of mobilized to both educate ourselves on those issues and to also use the platforms that we have and our players have to, to, to take stands on some of the, the, the issues that, that um, people from those communities that, who are being empowered by those events face, then, then it's a very easy ask, I think. And then you have like a very, I guess, it's quite material, but it's also quite important. And that is that us, all of our staff give 1% of their uh, salary to, to Common Goal, which is the, the, the organization set up by Jürgen Griesbeck and Juan Mata to, to ask football players to give 1% of their salaries to, uh, to, to global good causes. And 1% of all of our stadium revenues are, are donated towards that. It's just, we were the first club in the world to join. There are very tangible material things that kind of, make it feelable for our people every day i guess that purpose and that and that and, and that is felt presumably that is felt by the fans you're talking go, taking a loop back to that point about how fans interact with you this is something that um because again there's it can be skepticism it can often border on cynicism that people will 
roll their eyes and go, look, I'm just, I just want to watch a football club. But actually, I find, personally speaking, that, yeah, on the surface, when they're not thinking about things, when they're just trundling along, that's true. Um, and, and it is true that fans care, care about um, transfer fees and we all get excited um, about you know, if this happens in our case, because you know, if we, if if you're if you you're a fan of a club that that can be sold, a new owner comes in, and oh, it's all exciting and all that kind of stuff. But actually, there are times when what the club really means underneath all of that, underneath that very thin, brittle layer of 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 the date of the the match by match and the success or failure on the pitch, it's it's a deep attachment um, to to what the club is, and actually. It's that it's it's you know all of that is deeply is often very deeply felt, and then you'll see when there is failure or um, chaos, you know something bad happens with the football club. You'll see what people really think about it, and you realise how brittle that cynicism and and scepticism is about values, because actually the values do really matter to to, to fans. I find, don't they? I think, yeah, they do. And I think the constant ongoing um, campaign and task and the responsibility that I think those people in leadership of football at clubs like ours need to undertake is that to try to explain to people and fans more than anybody that these two, there's no dichotomy here. There's no like split to go, it's not one thing or the other. The two things are entirely um, mutually beneficial. And, And in fact, our profound belief is that if Marcus Rashford and LeBron James and people like that are the kind of apex of it, there are, this is something that can actually have performance benefits for the players and therefore for the fans and take us to another level it's not a kind of instead of and there was a brilliant um interesting debate actually it's not brilliant it's, it's, it's kind of it's troubling in some ways on instagram recently when i think it was just a couple of days ago i i'm gonna i won't say the name of the of the account because i'll basically get it wrong but it was one of the the big uh, uh, football content, meme culture type uh, 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 football news accounts. Um, and they posted a, uh, a, a thing where it said, should a player do 50-50 on um, other things plus football, i.e. divide their attention to some degree, that was their insinuation, right? Or should they focus 100% on the game and making it? And that is the very asking that question has just completely misunderstood what the, 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 the issue is that's facing young players and the type of psychology that we as transformers within the game need to challenge like very, very directly. And Marvin Sordell, who I think is absolutely brilliant, came on and put the best comment on there was just like, that's not there's no choice between those two things. You can be 100% committed to both of them and indeed all athletes should be. Look at what he's doing now. He's, you know, spending his time between the new media agency that he's growing and that he's a mental health campaigner and he's setting up an organisation for, for players transitioning out of the game. Like, all that. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a myth. There is no 
no, there's no, they're not mutually exclusive. This idea. No, absolutely not. No. Be committed to a greater development of yourself and the world and be a really, really great athlete at the same time. No, I agree, but there you go. There's, there's a whole, yeah, it's the same in, it's the same in politics as in football and wider sports, certainly in football is there's, there's a whole raft of people who spend all their time gossiping about something. And then there are, uh, there are other people who, um, who spend their time trying to think about things and have, have sensible conversations about it. My, you know, it, gossip and stuff is interesting and exciting occasionally, but when people who are in no position of authority start to suggest that they understand the psychology of players in that way, and, and, and frame it as, are you 100% committed if you're not get out of our club kind of thing, then, you know, for me, it's white noise. I've, I've learned to just kind of, I get momentarily cross about it and then I go, not worth it. Might as well walk away from that one. But it's good that, you know, I'm, I, it's great. I think it's great. It's good for football that players are, are not allowing themselves to be framed as just, you know, the kind of, um, you know, like, frankly, like, meat in a butcher's shop um you know and they're not just the product and you know undoubtedly someone like marcus rashford is the person is one of the poster poster boy for 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 for, for, for players kind of having different things to do but having purpose doing other things with their lives but i'm sure there are lots of other players who are, who are doing that and it's good i think it's a great thing and it and it and it should be encouraged and i and i hate this idea that that somehow players should be over there and fans should be over there whilst we constantly bemoan how clubs and how players are now distant from us and how we all used to get on the trolley bus to the football match well the more close they are to us isn't that a good thing because we're sort of returning to some of the good things of that time when players were closer to us as fans and that makes the whole thing a lot better doesn't it isn't that a better i think that's a better that's a really good way of um, that's a really good example, I think, of trying yeah, to get the closeness between yeah. fans and players. Yeah. I, I, don't, I think if that's one of the great things, actually, about social media is the level of interaction between fans and, and, and players themselves outside of clubs. And, you know, I've been quite taken with this new platform, Clubhouse, and I've been lucky enough to be in rooms and in places where there were very, very well-known retired and playing players having very open, frank conversations with the the, the people that, that follow them. And it's in, in a way that probably isn't possible with that old style, you know, kind of like separation between the, the, the fans and the players themselves. So, and I think that's happening across the game. And also I think just to answer your point very directly about like Marcus Rashford, what he's done is brilliant and we, he's like a guiding light, I think, for lots of athletes to follow. At the same time, there are a bunch of athletes who have quietly been doing really great things as well, you know, and it's just very, maybe a different scale. And I think what he has done is taught, taught athletes that their platform is huge. You know, you've got to think there's four billion football fans in the world. If it was a religion, it'd be the biggest religion in the world. It is, it is a massive platform that, and that, that's why it's so important to invest in the idea of, of, of getting a purpose drive within these, these players, you know. Um, and if 
they can uh, uh, use that platform, use it re really, really well, then great. Marcus Rashford used it to, to change policy, to lobby a government to actually change policy. Fantastic. But there's lots of players who are also doing really great stuff with their own foundations, their own donations, and also their own kind of um, campaigning work as well, but at a kind of a quieter, what seems like a quieter level. So um, I'm, I'm aware that we're, we're probably running up against time. I just wanted to very quickly touch on, so your, your role now, so you've moved out of the football club and you're into the general organisation and your title is Purpose Lead. Is that right? Um, so you, what, what, what have you brought from, you know, the, the, it's the coalface running a football club, being the commercial director, you know, stripping everything back to just the football it's a challenge trying to run the commercial operation of any football club even one that has a clear purpose like yours and you know is quite sort of comfortable in its skin let's say um what are you taking back into the organization the right to dream i keep wanting to call it dare to dream and i know it's not right to dream <laughs> group what are you taking back in because Actually, I like to think that you being out there and understanding what that relationship is between a club and its fans, um, you know, that, that, that can be brought back into the organisation and that can kind of help to inform what it's doing in its bigger purpose and whether it moves more into working with other clubs or whether it, you know, wherever it goes, that learning is going to be very useful for it, isn't it? Yeah, that's... I, I love this question actually, and I think it's very simple to answer. I think it's about respecting football's soul. That's what you can bring into a more internal focused role, like the role I'm, I'm, I'm taking up now. And, you know, when we talk about football soul, we're talking about fans and people, people who we have a kind of shared responsibility to, um, and that we're kind of investing in a constant, creation and transformation of a culture with them and if internally we think in that way then we're taking big steps towards our purpose because we're already thinking outside of our own kind of small easy to fall into selfish bubbles right and that I think having that you called it coalface which is one way to think about it right because you are like that but the the, the way in which the people that like I'm so grateful to the people in the team that when I was commercial director, they were absolutely brilliant. And the way in which they conveyed when it wasn't direct to me and it was direct to them, but the way in which they conveyed the needs, desires, passions of those fans, there is no way to understand it other than it is like it is the soul of football. These, 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 these amazing people coming to watch us and engaging with us, even in small numbers, um, because it really, really matters to them. What happens on that pitch and around the club really, really matters to them. And so like building that into uh, our, um, the things that we try to teach and develop in our staff, our coaches and our players, and, and that soul, that's, that's what I will take away.